This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Mook Delivery, bringing you the food you love. Mook Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with Mook Delivery. So the only thing left to say is, Georgie, check for Dadsy. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So the ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. <laughs> only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery free in terms supply. See mcdonalds.com. Prize Picks is daily fantasy sports made easy. How does it work? You pick two to six players and if they score more or less than their prize picks projection, you can win up to 25 times your money on any entry. Didn't get your picks in before the game started? No problem. You can get in the game for the second half. Sign up today using promo code FOOTBALL and get your first deposit instantly matched up to $100. Go to pricepicks.com or download the mobile app and enter code FOOTBALL to get your deposit match. Some restrictions do apply. See the website for details. I remember once Jeff Powell ringing up to try and sort of clear the air and he got through to me and said, um, I wonder if I could have a chat with Graham. So I said, I, I don't know. I'll ask him. So I went into his office and said, how would you like to speak to Jeff Powell? And he said, through a medium. Um <laughs> Brilliant. Leicester City have a penalty kick in the six minutes of injury time. Injury time. Injury time. Look out, takes. Almunia saves. Look out, follows in. Almunia saves again. And now Wapner on the counter attack. Forestieri. Oh, I don't believe this. Here's Hawk. Dini. I do not believe what I've just seen. Troy has scored from a Leicester penalty that was saved by Almunia. Do not scratch your eyes. Do not scratch your eyes. Do not scratch your eyes. Welcome to the Do Not Scratch Your Eyes podcast. Joining myself, Carl, and Peter this evening is Andrew French. Good evening, Andrew. How are you? I'm really good. I'm pleased to be here. This is my podcast debut. Well, if you haven't heard of Andrew French over the last few weeks, you clearly haven't been paying attention. He has a varied background, which ties in with an awful lot of interesting Watford stuff. And as you all know, we like interesting Watford stuff. But at the moment, he is uh, basically putting out some absolutely top quality content for, for the Watford Observer. And anybody who's listened to me bang on for ages about what the Watford Observer used to be, I can pay the man no higher compliment than this is as good as it's been for literally decades. He's done brilliantly. But Andrew, before we get to all of that, before we talk about your great pieces and your interview with with Scott Duxbury and all of the myriad of stuff that's going on, tell us, when did you first start following Watford? Because you are, first and foremost, a Watford fan, are you not? 
Oh yeah, Watford has been my life since 78. I can remember the first game I went to, Colchester at home, in a League Cup tie on a Tuesday night, second leg. Um, I think we lost the first leg, or yes, I think we lost the first leg 2-0, and a friend of mine, or a friend of my dad's popped round and said, oh, I'm just going off to watch the Watford game. And I remember saying, can I go and watch that, Dad? And he was like, well, my dad's a Tottenham fan. And he said, yeah, go on, then we'll pop along Tuesday night, warm weather. And I think we won 2-1, but knocked out an aggregate. And I stood on the Vicarage Road end, on the corner between the Vicarage Road end and the Shrodale stand, there used to be railings on a wall. Yep. And my dad stood me on the wall and sort of told me to put my arms through the railings because I wasn't very big. And I watched the game from there and the lights came on and that was like a wow, floodlights, wow. And that was it. Um, and I've been a fan for know, 40, what, is that 44 years. That was just the way it was. You support your local team. I was very uh, alone in that. In my school, we had lots of Liverpool fans at the time because if you remember, that was the sort of era where they were dominant so yeah I was on my own but I proudly wore my my Watford shirt when we had football training and I got my first season ticket the year we went up to the old first division um sat in the stands for a while realized I didn't like that went back on the terraces and and never looked back I've never supported anybody else uh never had a season ticket anywhere else um my dream was to play for Watford uh that was pretty obviously not going to happen from the minute I started playing football uh, so that's the next best thing to to write about them and then to work for them. You know, I, I, I've i sort of lived a bit of a, a football fan's dream. And it's lovely to come back full circle, as you say. You know, be back writing about the club. Would love it to be in a better time, but then perhaps if it was in a better time, I wouldn't have got the chance. Very possibly. Fantastic, sir. I am also a vintage 1978. It's a fine year. Only the best supporters started in 1978. You two whippersnappers, obviously, you don't count. Uh, <laughs> some of you some of you have aged better, though, Peter. I'm, you know. <laughs> I mean, Andrew, Andrew uh, polishes up a little bit better than you do. Yeah, <laughs> no, this is true. This is true. This is true. So, I mean, going back to 1978 and that first game or that first kind of era when you first started supporting, who is the player that you recall kind of like attaching onto or latching onto? Who, who, was, who, who did you pretend to be in the playground against all of those other Liverpool Johnny-come-latelys? Well, to be fair, if you ever saw me play, it would have been an insult for me to say I was any Watford player. Um, I was probably more of a Pat Malloy. In, uh, Ooh. Uh, yeah. No, no, not a physio. I was a Pat Malloy in terms of that's how I played. I was quite, I looked like an old man. Um, my <laughs> Um, and originally, I think when you're a kid, you love the bloke who scores goals, don't you? Because you mm. don't, you know, as a seven, eight year old, you don't really appreciate a cultured centre half. So I didn't really get, or didn't really appreciate Ian Bolton. I didn't really get, you know, what the midfielders did. I wasn't really watching Roger Joslin. I, I was. Luther Bissett. You know, to follow Luther's career, you know, when I, at 78, we were on our way up to the, you know, the second division then, and he scored the goals, and he was just such a figurehead pick for England. Yeah, he was my hero. So later in life, to be sort of sitting on a bus or going to away games, listening to his stories, to be sitting and having drinks with him, he, he's what I'd class as a friend. And that's not me trying to drop names. That that was the first player I can remember. If I'd have been able to get a name on the back of my shirt, that would have been the name I would have got. But, you know, you were lucky to get a replica shirt in 78. So I do have a funny story, actually. I remember I did get a replica shirt. It was that really 
sort of plain yellow with a red and black stripe down the arm. Yeah. And I went to an open day and I got it signed by all the players and took it home. And, and a couple of weeks later, my mum said to me, that shirt of yours, that took some getting to get that pen marks out. Oh, no, no, no. No. So no. not only did I have no autographs, but I also had a Watford shirt that was now sort of more magenta because it had been through the watch two or three times. So it had a nice dark stripe down the arms and then this sort of like creamy washed out yellow with the odd dot of ink where she couldn't get it out. I mean, I forgave her for it, but, you know, yeah, she didn't really get that. <laughs> My mum washed my shirt to get the signatures out. And then in, what would it have been, 81, my dad said to me one Tuesday night, look, we're 4-0 down from the first leg and this is Southampton. Oh, no. There's absolutely no point going. You know, your dad knows best when you're 10. So I said, yeah, you're right, dad. Fair enough. We'll leave it. And I went to bed. And when I woke up on my desk next to my bed was a note saying, Watford 7, Southampton 1, I'm really sorry. uh, Yeah, they they both did me over. That is a tough one to forgive. (laughs) Yeah, and I never let him forget it. Every year and it comes up on Facebook, he always posts something, before you say it, I... But to be fair, he did then take me to the Forest game. I mean, I can't complain. You know, the man was a Tottenham through and through, and he gave that all up to take me to Watford. And, you know, even when I was working there, if I had a midweek game that was in the middle of nowhere, he'd always come along. So I can't complain. He did stop me seeing that 7-1. I look back on those things and think, yeah, I wish I could have gone. But then you can make, you know, you can, you can only influence the future. So after that, my dad never tried again to get out of Pittsburgh, whatever it was, £2 on a Tuesday night because we were losing 4-0 from the first leg. We went to pretty much every game after that. I love the reference of the Forest game because, we, the as you mentioned there, the Southampton game, which is famous for obvious reasons, was a two-legged affair. But the Forest game was, in, in the next round, was, was a single leg. leg. And we beat them 4-1, and the Vic was absolutely heaving. Well, I seem and to and they, they were, of course, would have been European champions, maybe, maybe even twice European champions and I seem at the time. I remember that night, I think, that was that the night we all got given the Watford 7, Southampton 1 yeah. But yes. we also got these little things, I don't know what you'd call them, like, I don't know, like pom-poms. And they were made of tissue paper and they were red and yellow. And the idea was we were supposed to shake them. But it absolutely pissed with rain. So mm. all I ended up doing was holding a toilet roll and having two hands, <laughs> red and yellow guide in it. <laughs> so yeah, the, the pen was a much better souvenir than than the, the sort of pom-poms were. But yeah, I, I remember, I can't remember we went out to in the end, but I remember that 4-1, yeah, because they were European champions. And yeah. you just can't it, imagine, you couldn't imagine Watford hosting, you know, Liverpool now and Dickingham 4-1, could you? And and two years previous to that, we'd, we'd drawn them in the semi-final, That's lost right. 3-1 up there and 0-0 at our place. Yeah. But to then get them on one go, it was, it, it was one of those games, it's a bit like Matty Vidra's goal against Leicester that nobody talks about. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was one of the greatest performances performances and great nights um but uh but but it's just overshadowed by that 7-1 amazing and you're right they gave the pens out didn't they? one of those things that 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 sort of era did for me was sort of made falsely made me think that that's how football always was you know that dreams came true and you did win 7-1 you did beat the european champions <laughs> one. i remember playing sunderland at home in the first season in the first division and thinking well every time we score before the 10th minute we'll probably score eight goals um so i can sort of understand now why fans who have been brought up on relatively 
successful seasons in the Premier League or FA Cup finals look at it now and think, well, this is a disaster. We're back in the championship. But after those years of Graham Taylor, I then sat through Colin Lee, Steve Perryman, mm. uh, Dave Bassett. I worked with Viali. So, you know, that you have to, I've always said to people, you have to get a bit of context that while I would rather we were, you know, a successful Premier League team, those seasons are very much in the minority. If you're over the age of 40, you know, you've lived through some absolute grim times yeah. of you know, why do I do this? And only the other day I was, I sort of read an article that it was so many years ago that we went to Oxford and won to stay up, you know, and I think back then we were celebrating beating Oxford to stay up <laughs> that, you know, that, that was worth celebrating. Yeah. If that happens next season, you know, the, the, the fans will be, you know, looking for throats to be cut. It's all relative. You have to say. It's relative. I was just going to say that. It's relative. You have to yeah. say that, you know, that the recent success has been great. If you're in your 20s, you must think this is wonderful. If you're in your 40s, you think it's equally wonderful because you remember how unwonderful it was for me. Yeah, I'm just be- just before 40. I'm 39. And I'd, honestly, I'm, I sit right in that, what you've just described there, like how, how great things have been to, to, you know, some of the managers that you've just mentioned there. Um, Viali, my God. They they were they were tough times and it's um yeah it, relative is absolutely spot on. Well, Peter, remember after we got promoted to division whatever it was division two back in those days, it, people think I don't know why that we jumped straight out to division one, but we had a couple of really three moribund, years, yeah, we had some really moribund seasons, just you know just staying afloat and then being mid table. It wasn't like we went on a march and just stormed through into division one. You had that period where you know even by Graham's own admission, you know we were just sort of treading water a bit because we'd gone up, you know, and, and it was a big step up. So I think, you know, you, it, relativity is what I've always said to people is, you know, it, it, Watford are punching above their weight by being in the top division. If we are then successful in the top division, we are, you know, massively punching above our weight. Doesn't mean we can't, doesn't mean we shouldn't aspire to, but you have to have a sense of relativity and say, well, you know, look back at when, what went before this and remember that, you know, these... These last 10 years, on the whole, have been way above the Watford average. You know, we've been, mm. if we were golfers, we've been shooting under par for 10 years. And just because we've had one bad round doesn't mean that we won't go under par again. So I'd also say, Andrew, we've picked our time as well to, to go into that top flight where the money has gone astronomical. So mm. if there was any time to really do it, it was now. And people will look at us being in the in the championship, but there's not many teams over the years previously that have, will have the parachute money and, and so forth that, that Watford will have. So You've only got to look around the championship and look at teams. And I get a bit annoyed, teams and, and sets of fans who think that they, they should be in the Premier League because mm. they are big. Well, the fact that they're not means they shouldn't be. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter on your fan base. You know, if that was the case, if, if it was down to how successful you were, old Etonians would still be in the top division with the Wanderers, you know, because mm. they were big in the late 1800s. You earn your right to be there. <laughs> and you've only got to look at the, the sort of dead bodies of teams who were in the Premier League who are scrambling around in the, the Championship or League One. I mean, look at Bradford. You know, Bradford came up with us um, and now they're, what, bobbing around in League Two? Um, mm. I worked at Charlton for, for five seasons, for four seasons, and, you know, they were an established Premier League club who then you know just went yeah. on freefall. While I'm you know I'm I'm a realist, I also have expectations. But I should imagine there's for every one of us who's having this conversation, there's probably twenty sets of fans in the Championship who also think like we do that our team can do it, and you know this is going to be their season. We have an advantage; we've come down from the Premier League. But I look at the Championship, and you know I've spoken to a lot of the former players, and they all say the same thing: you know this, this is the hardest one to do. Getting out, this is hard. So. Yeah, 
you know, and we've been we've been here before, and I'm sure that the chances are we'll be here again because I can't think for one minute we're going to stay in the top division forever. But no, you, you have to have a sense of relativity and say, okay, it's been disappointing, but I, I've had many, many more disappointing seasons than the one that's just gone in terms of feeling let down. 87 with Bassett was, was for me, was a much bigger letdown because um, we were a mid-table top division club and in the space of a few months, he took us to a team that was cast adrift at the bottom of the division and never really recovered for years afterwards. So a lot of younger fans will understand, and I sound like a real old man, but, you know, just have a look back through the, the book history and say, well, you know, this this is, you know, what you're living through now is probably, you know, the best years, bar maybe eight or nine in the late 70s through to the late 80s. I think you're absolutely right about the relativity and how long you have been supporting the club for. Um, you know, because if you right, if you go right back, you know, before Taylor, uh, you know, before his first, you know, be, yours in my first season, effectively, mm. before he took us up from what was the fourth division, now League Two, we had spent two seasons outside of outside of the bottom two divisions. Taylor comes in, takes us up. Since he came in, we've spent only two years in the bottom two divisions, and one of those was him taking us back up again. Mm. So he kind of reset everything that was there. And I think we're as guilty of thinking, well, our natural place now is in the championship, which it probably is now. That's where we are now. He's done that change. As as people are now going, well, you know, we we, we do the, the Twitter spaces and people come on and say, I've been supporting since 2012. I, nobody told me about this relegation thing. You know, it was almost like it was a surprise at one point. But it's only reasonable that they they sort of they sort of think that. And they under, and that's how they that's how they relate to the club. Of you mentioned earlier on, you know, you just kind of took it for granted that we'd beat the European champions because Taylor was a was a miracle worker. And in fairness, as we've said a number of times, the Pozzo era, whilst it's gone through some rough seasons here, has been you know as, as close to it as anybody's got. Um, so you can kind of understand it, really. But uh, that's why some people think, think last year. When I think back, I remember you know as I say going to those games, the cup ties, um, you know, beating. Arsenal in a cup tie, I think, you know, beating Man United, beating West Ham, getting to the first division. And I remember my dad saying, you know, you're going to have to keep a lid on this. He said, because, you know, I grew up, Watford was a team that I knew they existed. He said, but the reason I supported Tottenham was because they were rubbish. And what, there was no way I was going to spend my money going down to watch Division 3 South football. So he sort of made me have a bit of a sense of reality that, you know, this this is great, but it's not the Watford that people older than you will know. That You know, they're used to you being, you know, down the bottom of the pool's coupon on a Saturday and you know no one covered you and no one really knew they knew more about the dog track than about the football stadium so mm-hmm. yeah you know you, you've only got to look back and you haven't got to look back very far to realize that the last few years have been a treat but that you know I, I honestly believe you know that the, 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 there's more treats to come when you're a club like Watford you may have to accept the odds trough as well as lots of peaks we talked there obviously a lot about the the, the the Taylor era and you like me went through that and you mentioned obviously Taylor moves on, the club goes goes through a trough. But where did you go from going through the Taylor era, experiencing the Taylor era, and then you come back to the club? What what was your professional kind of career path to so, to get to where you came to in '98? I wanted to be an air traffic controller. Don't ask me why. Pressure, but pressure. That's what I, I wanted to be when I was at school. A lot of responsibility with that. Yeah, I just. <laughs> airports very sad I remember we had a careers evening at school and my mum and dad trotted up and we met different teachers and my English teacher said to my mum and dad look you know I know Andrew said he wants to be an air traffic controller but if you don't try and talk him into doing something that involves right 
writing in words, then he's really going to waste a gift because he's a very good writer. When you're sort of a 17-year-old kid and you're trying to be cool, you don't really think about being a writer because I thought, you know, and also you don't want to be seen as being a SWAT or, you know, my kids call it a try-hard these days. And I remember my <laughs> mate sort of saying to me, oh, are you going to be a writer? So, yeah, the English teacher had said it would be a waste of talent. And my dad said, well, I know someone at the Watford Observer. Why don't you try and get work experience at the Watford Observer? I can ask. So I went down there and did my week's work experience. Ollie Phillips was there at the time. I know from uh, from memory, but also from what many people have told me, I was a, you know, a bit of a twat as a sort of a... <laughs> 17 year old you know um <laughs> it's just what you know it, it's, it's just the way it was I was a bit gobby so I, I went down there and did my stuff and didn't think much more about it but I was invited back for another go and then another go and by the time I was doing my A-levels I was writing um two or three columns a week about youth football and Sunday football and halfway through my A-levels I got offered a job when I'd finished which was a you know when I look back what position to be in you're talking the late 80s when unemployment was high and yet there I was being offered a job before I'd completed my A-levels so I went off and trained to be a journalist with the Watford Observer and spent oh nearly 10 years there great years ended up on the sports desk with Ollie the best writer that that Watford and probably local newspapers have ever seen and also a great teacher and as much as he taught me you know do it properly if you're not if you're going to do it do it properly be thorough be investigative um, ask all the questions but also have empathy try and put yourself in the mind of a fan and what a fan would want to know and get the detail and that sort of taught me well so I never got to cover the club Um, Ollie always covered Watford while I was there I was sports editor for the last two or three years, but he always wrote about the club. And understandably so, there was no way that, you know, he was he was going to relinquish that. He was too good. And I toyed with what I was going to do next. And I remember when Ollie used to go on holiday in the summer, that was my chance to do a bit of Watford. But obviously no games. It was just all pre-season and transfers. But that was the time I spoke to Graham Taylor and got to know him a little bit. Uh, and then one day I got a call from someone else at the club saying, look, Graham wants to put together a proper communications PR team. He's been at England. He's been at Wolves he can see the way this is going and he wants to be ready for it would you be interested and yeah I sort of played it cool inside I'm thinking well this is the next best thing to being asked to play you know this is but you, you know I tried to play it cool and I went and met him in his office and you know he said um, are you interested in the job and I said yes I've been impressed in the way you work you obviously got a lot of love for the club do you fancy it and again I played it cool yeah yeah and it was like you know what sort of salary are you looking for and I told him and he said yeah yeah we can do that and I thought oh shit I should have said more <laughs> um, <laughs> and then he said you know we'll give you a car because we expect you to travel around and you have to go to all the games and you know there I was with the greatest manager the club's ever had who was a hero of mine saying to me mm-hmm. you want to work for me and travel to all the games with me and I'm still trying to play it cool but inside you know it's a bit like that scene in Honey Fools and Horses where they sold the, the watch you, yeah in the van to to a yes <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I, I, that would that would have been around March 98 um, and I joined the club just before we got promoted. So I think my first game was the week before or two weeks before the Fulham game. Um, so I joined at a really good time. Um, I was there at the Fulham game. That's how I started. That's that's how, it, it, you know, and it, even after Fulham, I never expected that the next season we'd go straight through into the Premier League. And to be honest, I don't think the club did either. You know, we were probably caught unawares there of how good it was. But I've talked to a lot of the players from that squad. I mean, they were they were a great bunch of players. It, it really was a wonderful time to be at the club. Um, great staff. You had, you know, you had, 
Graham, Luther, Kenny, Tom Wally. We had some great times. And halfway through that 98-99 season, I think we'd sort of fallen away a little bit. And I remember there was a, a get-together uh, and sort of a resetting amongst the, the players and the staff of what this season could be. They really went for it. You know, I spoke to Tommy Mooney the other day. That, that run we went on, you know, was just phenomenal. And you could tell just by being around those players and being at the training ground and being on the team bus, you know, they, they never felt for one minute they weren't going to do it. Once they got on that run, we were going to go all the way and win it. There was no doubt about that. And that wasn't a load of old BS. You know, that's what they really believed. Tommy believed he'd score every week. Alec believed he'd keep a clean sheet. The team thought they would win every week. And for eight, what, seven or eight games, we, we did. Yeah, wonderful season. Um, never, never forget that. What were your kind of day-to-day tasks and duties in this role then? What, what, what kind of thing does a chief press officer of the club do? Well, back then, it's easy to say what we didn't have. So we didn't have to worry about social media. It was very much in its infancy. we just got a website. Sky were sort of on the scene. Really, in a nutshell, my job was to be the conduit between the club and the media. And to, and to make sure the club was seen in a good light and, you know, a bit of a conduit between the fans as well. So, yeah, just to project the right image. You know, Graham wanted to make sure that wherever Watford were mentioned and seen, we were seen in the way that reflected what he wanted it to be. So, yeah, I used to travel with him to games and just make sure that any time a camera popped up, it was certainly more prevalent in the Premier League. But back then, you know, once we got on a bit of a run, you know, you'd be on Sky more. He just wanted me there to oversee his media duties, oversee the players' media duties, give them a hand. It was all about preparation with Graham. You know, that season, 98-99, we did a lot of stuff that stood us in good stead for the Premier League season. So we were sort of thinking ahead and saying, okay, if we go up, we need to do certain things. So we got players more prepared for interviews we got the club more prepared for tv games we extended the press box so that we had more seats so you didn't upset someone who would then write something bad about you it was pretty much overseeing media editing the program writing the website arranging interviews here at the famous sloping pitch podcast we're following the greatest show on earth but would you like pitch side seats for all the action in qatar the heat the goals the drama well so would we but why not join me nick hancock in stoke-on-trent and co-host chris england in london's sw16 every game live from england the famous sloping pitch podcast we think this tournament could be okay sport social you know, it's one of those things that I, I'm going to say it now. I'd have done it for nothing. You didn't mind being in early. You didn't mind going home late because it was Watford and you were doing stuff that you'd only ever dreamed of. And was was this sort of stuff informed from uh, for, for any for any listeners who don't know? I'd be surprised it, but but Graham Taylor really suffered through the media during his England tenure. Mm. He, he he took a he took a, a battering, uh, and and then also a documentary that came out, and it really took a long time for him to to be able to shake that off. And it was really at Watford where he did that. And I think everybody loved obviously the fact that one, it's our club going up, but secondly, obviously the return of Graham Taylor to a club that absolutely idolised the man and 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 everything coming together was wonderful I think it was so cathartic but was all of that stuff that you were kind of doing was that informed from from his experiences with England? Yeah, yeah definitely one of the things he said when I first joined was he was open you know he said I, I obviously had the bad experience with England and saw the, the downside of the media but you know he said you know, like, like with any England game when we won they loved me when we lost they hated me but he probably got the worst of it I can't think of an England manager since who's got the, the level of abuse that he got you know he 
his head on a turnip on the back page of a newspaper. And he told me stories about, you know, media knocking on his house door when he wasn't there to tell his kids that he was going to get the sack and things like that. You know, it was just, it was grim. So he'd obviously seen the bad side of it. And he'd also seen that the expansive coverage that was coming. So he realised that, you know, Sky TV wasn't going anywhere. He, he was aware of the web. He was aware of social media and he just saw the way it was going. And he said, well, you know, if we're going to go and do this, like I think we can, I want to be ready for it. And I think I know from my England days what's coming. So let, let's organise ourselves. And he was very much about building relationships. And, and that's something you do in PR, you know. So I got to know a lot of journalists that he knew. So John Sadler at The Sun, who we had a very good relationship, I got to know very well. I didn't get to know Gary Lineker quite so well. He didn't really like him. But Jeff Powell at The Mail wasn't mm. Great friend of his either. I, I remember once Jeff Powell ringing up to try and sort of clear the air, and I, he got through to me. He said, um, "I wonder if I could have a chat with Graham." So I said, "I, I don't know. I'll ask him." So I went into his office and said, "How would you like to speak to Jeff Powell?" And he said, "Through a medium." Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Which, <laughs> Love that. I, I sort of stood, and he, he then laughed. He went, "I'm not serious. I'm not serious." Obviously, he said, "No, I don't want to talk to him." But yeah, it was just it was an education. He'd obviously seen what the media could be, and. It wasn't like that when Watford were in the, the old first division. There wasn't that scrutiny. There wasn't that 24-hour access. There wasn't any of what we have now. But he knew it was coming. Yeah. Second stint at Watford. So, yeah, he was educated. It was informed. <laughs> all preparatory not just for him but for the club it was always good of the club during his second spell with the club there was a one point where and i think it kind of plays into what you're saying there he called out that effectively you know with the premier league coming along it basically watford needed to be above a threshold of the top 30 clubs he said if we're you know we come back to your point about you know kind of uh kind of boxing above our weight here. He said that at that point, he could see that was coming, which has pretty much happened again. He was far more future viewing, I think, than we probably think, you know, give him credit for. Oh, he had, he had tremendous foresight. You know, when I think to some of the things that he used to share, the amount of data that he would analyse about opposition and his own players, that now is commonplace. You know, he was probably, he was almost doing a part-time role as a football data analyst back then. So he always had, he was always ahead of the curve. He was very cutting edge, but he also surrounded himself with people who knew more about the things that he thought were important. And I thought that was a really great quality where he would say, you know, I know a bit about this, but I want an expert. I may not be the, the absolute authority on it, but I know enough to hold court. He knew enough that he could question you, but he didn't expect to be the expert in it. So he had a group of people around him and, it, you know, it was different when Viali came, but we had a team of people there that he assembled that he knew would be useful to him. He didn't know enough about it himself. So he would never obviously hire another manager, but he hired coaches. I mean, if you remember, you know, pink t-shirt man, Kieran. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. there's going to be a lot about sports psychology and a lot about mentality and a lot about getting inside players' heads. I need that. I can't do it myself. So I'm going to find someone who does it. And he brought them in. And, you know, I like to think in my own way, that was my little bit where, you know, I, he thought I could be useful. And I mean, you know, wind forward several years when he was chairman and, and we had the Russos run the club, I would regularly spend a couple of hours on the phone with him where he'd ring me and say, look, I want your opinion on this and I want your advice. And the first time we did it, I said, look, I, this feels really odd, Graham, because, you know, you're a legend and I'm just me. And he went, yeah, but I told you, you know more about what you do than I do. So I want your opinion on it. Mm. And so there were several times where I'd say, well, I'd do this with it. And I don't know if he did it or acted upon it, but he was very good at saying, yeah, you know, I, I, I know what I know, but I need other people and more about these things than I do if I'm going to take the club forward. Well, mm. that speaks volumes of him, doesn't it, really? Yeah, that that, that takes me into what I was going to say. Um, you're in such a privileged position and, and Graham Taylor to 
majority of Watford fans is a god. You know, no, no questions what he achieved and, and 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 who he was. But the man is what interests me. I, I got to meet him on a handful of occasions to, to to speak to him. But you probably had conversations with him. You know, personal conversations, where whatever. Is is there something that stands out in your mind? A, a conversation or something that he said? Your your position is is quite privileged, and I, I'm I'm interested to to know if there's anything that personal or anything like that that oh, yeah, there's, there's that, that kind of sits with you. The the one that sticks with me most, and I when I've done presentations and nothing to do with football, just about business mm. or what I do. I, he said to me very early on, if you do your best, I know you'll be doing I'll know you're doing your best. And if you get it wrong, I'll back you up. And fantastic. What he was saying was don't be afraid to try things. So you know privately he might say to me, that was an you know, you really screwed up there. <laughs> Cheers, Greg. <laughs> publicly you knew he'd have your back. You know, yeah. Uh, and that's great to know. And I should imagine as a footballer that must be tremendous to think I can go out on the pitch and really express myself. And I might, you know, I might get my ass kicked in the changing room, but publicly he's gonna have my back. He's got me. That's yeah. one thing I liked. The other thing I liked was he was he was a great human being. He was a great person. You know, had had I met him and not known who he was, but just talked to him as a human being, he would have been as influential and as impressive as he was the manager. And what I mean by that is, you know, years after when when we didn't work together, we stayed in touch and, you know, he'd ring or I'd ring. And sometimes you could tell he was in a hurry and he'd say, yeah, I just before I start, how's that lad of yours? Is he, is he still playing golf? What about the youngest one? Is he still playing football? You know, and he remembered those little details. And it was that sort of thing, you know, that in life, you don't meet many people like that. To meet someone who was a very famous person and at the top of his career, who still found time and remembered that, you know, your son would take up golf or whatever. Or, you know, I remember when um, my first son was, my no, second son was born, Viali was at the, no, actually, I lied, my first son was born. Viali was at the club, but obviously Graham had been there and knew that he was on the way he rang me around the due date to see how it was going you know that that just doesn't happen no and when i said to him oh it's gone overdue he made a joke and he went yeah my first one was like that and then he rang about two weeks later after birth well she must have squeezed it out by now (laughs) that's what he was like you know he was just a great human being i think it was about three weeks four weeks before he died and we'd exchanged emails about something I can't remember what, but I remember the last email or my last email to him was, oh, my, my son's sitting here next to me and he says they've got a game on Sunday and he's got to play in midfield. What should he do? And I never expected to reply and it pinged straight back. You tell him to get run up there and link up with the forwards and keep looking right and left and play it well. I can't remember what the exact message was, but there I had the ex-England manager on a Sunday night or a Saturday night emailing me for messages for my son. That's the thing. He, he was just a great human being. Yeah. I, I really miss him. I really, really miss him. You know, the number of times I saw him at games and he always came over and he's just, he was just a great bloke. You know, he really was. Because I think, I think the club misses him. Andrew, honestly and truthfully, you, you, you know, from yeah, top to bottom. Too quickly, I think I've learned in the last week that they finally realised that, you know, he did have a damn good template, not just as in terms of being successful on the pitch, but how you run a club off the pitch. And I've heard the word culture. The only culture on a Saturday has been in my sort of yoghurt in the morning, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I just, I, I've been going to football and, and I've been watching Watford and, and they play in yellow and they're called Watford, but I haven't really felt associated with it. It felt a bit like a franchise, mm. which would never have happened under Graham, you know, and that was the thing, he, you know, he, he knew everything that was going on. You know, he, he knew how, when, that we'd ordered letterheaded paper. He knew that we were, you know, he knew everything. I did the chapter for that book, um, Tales of the Vicarage, and there were so many stories from that season in the Premier League that were just unbelievable. And 
you know, I'm trying to think of some of them now. I, he was just very, very funny, very dry. I mean, I, the one that to my mind was before a game at Newcastle. We, if we had a trip north of Birmingham, we stayed over the night before. I mean, Newcastle was obviously a long way north. So we travelled up on the Friday morning. And and I think I think the Newcastle game was January, February time. But the hotel we were staying in, we were having a party that night for their staff. Because obviously, hotel can't really have a Christmas party at Christmas. So they had their staff party. And players had gone to bed. And we could hear it going on. And he said, just go and see what's going on. So we went in there. And there's the four of us, me, Kenny, Luther, and Graham in Watford tracksuits and everybody else in their finery I said oh we can't he said no we can hang around come on they won't mind and they recognized him and sort of said you table over here sitting at a table having a few drinks so we could see these people looking and obviously a because we stood out a mile but b because they'd recognized him and I could see these two women talking and pointing and and we just tried to ignore it and in the end the one of them came over and she obviously had a bit of the falling down water and she said um well famous aren't you and he said yeah you you, you might recognize me he said you, you work in football don't you and I mean, I didn't say it, but the, the, the tracksuit was obviously a clue. But he said, yes, I do love you. I do work in football. And she said, um, you're a manager, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've managed England, haven't you? Yeah. And she kept saying to her friend, I'm right, I'm right. She said, I knew it. You're Brian Clough. <laughs> <laughs> Quality. And he said, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's me, Cluffy. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and I just thought, you know, I'm sure there's managers today who wouldn't wouldn't engage like that. But yeah, that was him. You know, he had a good laugh about it. And we, we ribbed him the next morning. And I remember, you know, some of the players finding out about it. And he said, yeah, it's hilarious. You know, yeah, I get mistaken for him all the time. That's that was brilliant. what he was like. Yeah, that, that season in the Premier League was real fun. Obviously not in terms of the results, but I knew the players and I knew they were trying their utmost and they were giving 100% every game. The fact that we were under-equipped to deal with it was obvious. But what you couldn't deny was... They were trying and they were united and they 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 hurt. Coming back on the bus from away games was painful because they hurt. There was no, you know, no card school. They were looking down at their feet and they were they were they were sorrowful because they'd lost. You knew it hurt and I knew they were trying. And you know, without digging out any of the recent teams, I don't know if the bus on away games had been quite as sombre as it was in the 1990s. There's normally a YouTube video going on or something like that on, 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 the, on the modern ones. You know I'm a bit of technophobe, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, well, put it this way, that, that that would not have happened in the 99-2000s. Yeah. There is a story, I, I remember it wasn't the 99-2000 season, it was the playoff semi-final, second leg away to Birmingham. Oh, yes. We, Ooh. But we travelled up to the Belfry in the morning, not for golf, but because they had a really good conference centre and he wanted to do a big talk-through sort of, you know, every, what each player is expected to do and run through their squad. And we were sat in there for quite a while and he had tremendous detail, no notes. He knew everything about the opposition. And we were, I don't know, probably halfway through and a phone went off, which was just like a cardinal sin. Uh, I remember it was Alan Smart's phone and it was in his jacket pocket and he was trying desperately to get to it and turn it off. But, you know, this was the, this was the nineties when you didn't have posh ringtones. It was that and it was going off and Graham just moved from where he was and sauntered across the room. And as Alan Smart got the phone out, he opened the phone up and yeah, hello. Yeah. No, no. He's in a meeting. Yeah. With me. Yeah. Yeah. A football meeting. Yeah. I'm the manager. Yeah. Yeah, I'll call you back. Goodbye. Put the phone down and just carried on. And Smart was 
you know, fearful what was coming. I don't think there was any other repercussions because he was such in a flow. He just did that, put the phone down and carried on. And I thought, what a thing to do. Whether today's players are allowed phones or whether today's managers would have treated it that way. But what Graham was very good at was not doing what you expected. I think all the players expected him to pick the phone up and smash it, but he didn't. And it actually lightened the mood a little bit. Andrew, what, what was his... I mean, you could obviously, we love the stories of Graham Taylor. They're fantastic, obviously. But we've also referenced earlier on Luther Blissett. And of course, another stalwart of, of the, the early 80s, era of Kenny Jacket where, where his support his immediate support staff around it what was the dynamic with, with those guys because uh, the, the aforementioned Alan Smart described Kenny Jacket as I think a little bit more kind of Sergeant Major-ish I don't know if that's fair oh, yeah. how yeah. do you use it Kenny, Kenny and Luther were, were a bit good cop bad cop didn't often see it but Ke- Kenny Kenny had a, had a very um, firm streak in him you know, he really could, if he needed to, you know, stop stop a conversation by talking over everybody and getting his point across. He was very, very firm and he didn't suffer fools gladly. So whereas Luther was a bit more relaxed, he he could, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say Luther's a soft touch, but I never saw Luther lose it. I saw Kenny lose it yeah. three times. Yeah. Never when Graham was around. And, let, you know, the way it tended to be was Graham would do the talking and then he would perhaps invite Kenny to say something or invite Luther to say something but you know Graham always led it if Graham wasn't around then Kenny led it and Kenny was the certainly the one that you know if someone needed their ass kicked he did it but it was always done you know they, they really dovetailed really well so it's a bit like the, you know when you see a police program on tv and they're talking about the the suspect Graham would start and then he'd pause and then Kenny would step in with a bit of detail and then Graham would come back in with a bit more detail and then, and then Luther would offer something that they fitted perfectly together they, they you know they really were a really well-oiled team like I say, Kenny was the one with the, the firm street. Luther could be firm, but they all knew their part. I, I spoke to Kenny again this week, and what I found really encouraging was Kenny sees a lot of Graham in Rob Edwards. Um, obviously, you know, he, he gave him his first senior coaching job, and he said that, you know, one of the things that struck him about Rob in the way that Graham was that Graham knew some players responded to having a kick up the arse and others needed an arm around the shoulder. That's often a hard balance to strike, but he feels, you know, that that's what Rob's got down to a T is knowing what different people and different players respond to. So I found that quite encouraging that Kenny would say that. No, absolutely. And in terms of like the the, the the players were there, I mean, the lads here have interviewed Micah Hyde and he came out with a particular tale where, uh, where, 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 <laughs> Well, that was the one. That's it. Yeah. That's that the one. May well yes, have been the yes. one. What was your What was your take? So that, that was, that was pre-season. I couldn't tell you what season, but obviously you had to do the team photograph, which was a bit of a ball ache. I've got to be honest. You know, getting thirty adults together who don't really want to be there, hoping it doesn't rain. You've got to do various photographs. So you had to do, you know, your panini stickers, and then you had to do this and that and the other. And you know, players really didn't like doing it. And to be honest, I didn't like doing it much. It was just a labour of love. You had to do it. And on that particular season, you know, we had some jokers around and Charlie Miller was in the squad. And I didn't notice at the time, but um, on the front row, Charlie was sat next to Micah. And I didn't notice. And the photographer didn't notice. And Graham didn't notice. But when we got the proofs of the pictures through, there you had Micah's knee with Charlie's hand on it and Charlie's knee with Micah's hand on it. And it was pretty obvious, you know, I mean, very funny, pretty obvious. And when I showed, I took him up to Graham, I mean, I was fearful fearful because he hated it as much as I did and I said look you're gonna to have to have a look at these and he didn't straight see it straight away and when I pointed it to him he just sort of like took his glasses off and walked around the room a couple of times came in yeah fucking idiots fuck them. <laughs> and he was, he was furious you know he was absolutely furious mainly because 
you know, it's a big day to pull together, but it meant yeah. we had to do it all again. I remember he called Kenny and explained to Kenny and said, right, get them all in whenever this was. Get them in on, on Tuesday. Um, we're going to have to do it again. And, and those, you know, those, those fuckers are going to pay for it. They're paying for this. <laughs> and I want all the other players knowing why we're doing it again. It's because it's Micah and Charlie, you know, they're going to... So, yeah, when when we had to do it again, um, Micah and Charlie were looking like, you know, they, they knew that they were in, in the shit. And a lot, they got a lot of ribbing from the other players. But anyway, we did the photograph again. Um, uh, and they didn't put their hands on the knees. And I thought that was the end of it. We had an away game and it was against Walsall, but we didn't play it at the best spot. I'm pretty certain we played it at Tamworth's ground. Is it the Lambs? It wasn't at the best spot. I'm, I'm sure it was Tamworth. And anyway, we, we travelled up there. I travelled up on the bus, played the game, got on the bus afterwards. And uh, Kenny got on at the front of the bus and said, um, Micah, Charlie, Gaffer wants to wear with you back in the changing rooms. So off they get. And Micah, I think, was in a vest and shorts and flip-flops. Charlie may have been in his tracksuit. They got off the front of the bus and Graham got on at the back of the bus and walked through the middle of the bus. Said, OK, Ron, off you go. And Ron, the bus driver, said, but there's two... I know there's two players in the dressing room. I'm telling you, off you go. So Ron starts the engine up. And one or two of the senior players were like, uh, Gaffer, I know there's two players in the dressing room. So we pull out the... At which point, I think Michael was the first one at the changing rooms, sort of running in his flip-flops, waving. And all Graham gets saying, drive on, Ron, drive on, drive on, Ron, on you go, on you go, Ron. Um, and there was players, they were saying something. This, and he just turned around and he went, they fucked up my day. I'm fucking up their ego. <laughs> and we left I them. love the other side of this story. Yeah, I love <laughs> the other side of this story. And I, I seem to remember Alec Chamberlain, because he lived in Northampton, um, knew some cab companies and got them a cab to his house. And then he obviously waited there and drove them to where they needed to go. But yeah, they never did get back on the bus. Brilliant. And, um, <laughs> but to be to be honest, both players had, had, didn't talk to me for a while after that because they saw me as sort of being complicit in it. They realised eventually that even if I hadn't, Graham would have seen it anyway. Um, I mean, to be honest, Micah, I have no problem with. Micah, I spoke to the other day, did a piece for What Observer. Charlie was icy for a lot longer. <laughs> but that was just Charlie's way, you know. And and by the end, I mean, what didn't help me with Charlie, another story, he was playing in the reserves later that season. And I wrote a report for the website. And I think he scored. And what I meant to type was Miller dinked the ball over the goalkeeper. But I unfortunately added an R in. And <laughs> Miller drinked the ball over the goalkeeper. And at that time, there were some rumours that Charlie... Um, was in his yeah. spare time, yeah. like like to type, you know, to try test the local ales out. Yeah, and he just came storming into the office, and you've done that on purpose, you know. Just when I got I started getting on with you, I, was, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, you know. If I was going to, I didn't. But yeah, we had another period of silence then when <laughs> very much. But you know, we've connected on social media now, and bygones are bygones, and yeah, that was just an amazing thing to see that them left behind uh, at. at Tamworth on a random Tuesday night was well, was very funny. Charlie's legendary, but maybe his legend at Watford is not for the reasons he'd like it to be. But yeah. all I say about Charlie is he, you know, he's been very civil with me since we've had some chats with him. There's no axe to grind. We get on all right. Nice. Good stuff. So we go up to the Premier League, and I think every, I think everybody echoes exactly what you just said about the team's efforts and their they're they're wanting to try to kind of perform and do their best. We come back down, and Graham has one season to again in in the champion in what is now the championship to try to get it back up how did that fare because it, it felt like it started okay but it kind of fell away how did how did you see that year when we came back well, i remember in that summer i mean he'd, he'd been very very prudent in not 
blowing money in the second half of the season. You know, I think we signed Helgerson. I remember him saying to me, you know, look, the de- directors and the board have said to me, there's money there if you want it. The way he explained it was, you know, I, I could agree a fee with Arsenal for Thierry Henry, but Thierry Henry won't come to Watford. I could go and sign some blokes who will come to Watford and spend money on them, but they won't make any difference. Do you want me to do that? Because I could bankrupt the club, take us down, and we'll be in no better position. What I would rather do is keep my powder dry and have a go at next season. Because not that we'd admitted defeat, but it was quite obvious from sort of Christmas onwards that we were on the way down. So he decided that the best thing to do was to get the money and use it in the following season. I think that was the summer that we signed Alan Nielsen, wasn't it? Nielsen, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. You know, that was big. That was two and a quarter million for us was a big amount of money. Espen Bardson, you know, didn't yeah. turn out to be so great, but... No. You know, over a million pounds for a goalkeeper for Watford was just unbelievable. And I think he bought, you know, we'd got Neil Cox. He'd got a core of players there that he thought could could take us up. And uh, you're right. I think the first half of the season, you know, I remember the first day of the season, I think it was Huddersfield away and we came back from behind to win 2-1 and we didn't play that well. And you looked at it and you thought, well, if we can do that when we don't play too well, we've got a lot going for us. But unfortunately, I think that was the season when we also had Fulham in the division when they were flying and they'd spent a lot of money. Yeah. And I think the game that killed us both in terms of the belief of the players and also the league was when we went to Fulham on Boxing Day. And we lost 5 nil or something. It? Yeah. Um, and for a lot of reasons, you know, that really, you know, I think then we lost a lot of belief. Fulham pulled away. You always have a bad run and Ash just happened to coincide with that game and it didn't work out. You know, yeah. we had we had the parts there. It didn't work out, and you know, by the end of it, I think we we, we finished top half, but we were we were some way off the playoffs, and you know, it become apparent that Graham wasn't going to carry on after that season. He was going to retire, and yeah, I mean, I, I I don't remember so much about that season because there wasn't so many highlights. Um, but yeah, the, the, there was a distinct feeling that at the start of the season we'd give it a go. Who knows? Had we gone up, perhaps he might have stayed on. But yeah. when it became apparent that was going to happen. Mm. He was ready to retire. He announced his retirement quite a long way before the end of the season, didn't he? If I remember rightly, because I, I yeah, don't remember it being that, a surprise. That was him again, though, you know, I mean, a lot of managers would have got to May and said, "Right, I'm jacking it in." He felt that it was giving the club the best chance because, and not in a conceited way, you know, whoever came in after Graham Taylor at Watford, as Dave Bassett found out, you know, you weren't following <laughs> yeah. a man, you were mm. following a legend. Mm. And Absolutely. it was going to be different. And I think he wanted to give the club some time to go and find the right person and do their due diligence and, you know, hopefully re- use the, the foundation that he'd laid because although we not made the pass, we still had the core of a really good side. Um, we had some money in the bank and, yeah. you know, we were still ambitious. So that's why he did it. You know, it wasn't, he wasn't, he wanted a, he wasn't doing the, you know, the sort of the Graham Taylor farewell tour around the northwest of England. It no, was, no. I'm telling you now, because I think that's the fairest and the best way for Watford. The fact, the fact that I say that and then we appointed Viali makes that sound really silly. But um, that was, the, that was the, the idea was that the club would go out and find someone who could take that squad of players onto the next level. Did Graham have any input into that in, in the sense of bringing him in? No. Nothing at all? No. No, he was obviously aware of who was coming in, and I, I believe he spoke to him, but it wasn't like, um, you know, there was a, a, an interview panel and Graham was on it. And I, I, to be honest, I don't actually think he wanted part of it because I think he wanted the club to appoint their own person and that person to yeah. feel that it was the club who wanted them and not Graham. Yeah, so yeah, fair in enough. a way that I wonder if Man United regretted saying that Alex Ferguson thought yeah. that Moyes was exactly the same principle, wasn't it? Yeah. But suddenly you're not just David Moyes, you're your son of Alex Ferguson, you know, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. Alex Ferguson's prime contender. So no, there was absolutely no input. Um 
he never he never expressed what he thought beforehand. He certainly did afterwards. But yeah, <laughs> there was no input into the Viali appointment at all. Yeah, it, it, it was. I think it was Brian Anderson, one of the guys, was it? Uh, um, who kind of made the, one, the board? One of the milkmen, right. as they were known. They would all they all they would all lay claim to have um, had a hand in it. Um, I remember the press conference we did when Viali joined, and there was a top table, and it was like watching a game of chess, watching the board members trying to manipulate their way into the seat next to Viali so that they'd be in shot you know it was um it was a real marquee appointment so yeah Brian was certainly key in it you know you had High Gungeon and uh Charles Lissack and Tim Shaw it's quite funny that they were all quite happy or quite keen to claim the appointment beforehand but I didn't see him stepping forward to claim it afterwards no Uh, yeah absolutely Podcast Network. It's the 90th minute. All your mates around, you've got your McNuggets share boxes ready to go. Your mates already got booked for double dipping and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? <whistles> At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery free in terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.